Welcome back to the 304 Sports Podcast. I'm Colby Warren Bertram. Alongside me is Sean Lamba for the second of the Sean Lamba special here on 3304 Sports. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the NFL. Um, a little bit of a miscellaneous uh, topic here to start, but uh, beyond that, it's going to be a very exciting episode. And Sean, I had a very exciting college football episode that we just recently recorded. And if you haven't seen that, please go check it out. Uh, Sean, how have you been? I've been all right. Uh, it's been getting real cold here in Blacksburg. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, today was mid forties. Yeah. It, it, by the looks of it, it's going to stay for most of the week, which I'm not looking forward to mm-hmm. being uh, a, a commuter to campus by bike. That's not ideal. Uh, so just going to have to weather the, weather the storm here. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, as last episode, we even talked about a little bit of the Christmas debate. We'll get into it again, but but we we, we did have a little bit of a compromise there uh, as we are getting these colder weathers. Uh, one thing we can agree upon is hot drinks like hot chocolate will certainly be something used a lot more. Uh, now, to start this episode, I did want to have one miscellaneous topic. Uh, we, t- we tend to try to keep the pro stuff to the pros and the like college or overall miscellaneous stuff to those episodes. So with that in mind, we actually do have a little bit of a pro thing here. You and I are both uh, big soccer guys ourselves. Uh, and one huge thing that happened this week uh, was the, um, the sacking of uh, Nuno Espirito Santos from uh, Tottenham Hotspur as their manager. And he was replaced by Antonio Conte. Now, I, the two-parter of a question here, the first part of this question I did want to ask is this a surprising that Nuno got sacked before Ole? No, I wouldn't think so. Um, I mean, you being a United fan, you obviously know better than I do, but I feel like Ole has been a a decent coach for Man U um, since arriving there. He's it's it's been a bit inconsistent for him, but um, overall, I think that it was an improvement from the previous manager. Whereas Tottenham, I mean, they've just been in sort of this uh, limbo these past, well, I guess generally all the time for them. It just, they don't seem to be able to get over the hump, to be able to win the big games. You know, they were thrashed by Man U. They lost to West Ham. They struggled to beat Newcastle, which is, which, you know, they've been in sort of the relegation conversation this year. So it's they were struggling against big six teams. There are other big six teams this year, so I think that the sacking was not necessarily unexpected. Um, yeah, I, I think that it was it was necessary, and with that, be interesting to see what Conte can do for the Hotspur. Sure, I mean, I can I can see why it could have been necessary over time. I just felt like that it's not like Nuno put him in a horrible position or anything. Uh, I mean, sure. He wasn't great in what I jokingly call the Mickey mouse league in the new third European uh, league that was formed for bets just started this year. Um, yeah. But otherwise like Nuno had him like what just around like the top 10. So, you know, not like in a horrible, horrible spot. Not like where Unai Emery had Arsenal at the beginning of the season, though they have completely turned things around. That's kind of why I had it. thought it was a little bit more surprising than Ole not being sacked yet, and that's just because Ole has been kind of dreadful to start here in the Prem, 
menu should be a lot higher. Uh, but I guess the question now with Conte as well is, is Conte a huge improvement over Nuno? Because personally, I don't know. I, I wouldn't know where to begin with that either. Um, you know, I've, I've developed a love for soccer, especially European soccer in recent years, and I've been trying to learn the, the ropes and, and coaches' reputations and things like that. So I, I wouldn't, I'm not really familiar with Conte's previous work. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, it could be, it could be. And so I, I'll be interested to see uh, what will happen with Tottenham going forward. Uh, here, can you uh, say like what you said over those last 10 seconds again? Because you did cut out. And this will be a point for you, Dan, hopefully. I, I don't know if you're clearly listening to all this. I, don't, I also don't know how you doubt Dan records. So. Yeah, okay. Um, we, can, we can tell him to start listening to yeah. around the middle, like at, at the very start of the NFL broadcast. Yep. So, and go. Yeah, so I'm not necessarily familiar with his previous work. Um, I do know he was briefly at Chelsea for a while, so it could be an interesting uh, uh, change of scenery for Tottenham. And, you know, he did have a little bit of success with Chelsea, so maybe he can bring some of that to uh, the Hotspur and finally push them over the the hump and win them a, a big match. Sure. Now, I mean, here's the reason why I said I don't know. Like, granted, I think he's a better manager overall. Um, and he's a more decorated manager, uh, starting with his success at Juventus. And then he had his uh, early success at Chelsea. And then, of course, he followed that up with success at Inter Milan. Uh, so, I mean, that's three clubs where he's won the domestic trophies with. Um, I don't remember how long he was at Juventus. I think it was a pretty long term comparatively to some other people, but. I digress. <laughs> the issue for someone like Conte is committing to him and committing the money to him. Uh, Chelsea were able to for one year, and then after that, they didn't want to because they're like, we got you your team, use your team. And Conte's like, no, I actually do need more. So then he eventually got he, – he and Chelsea parted ways. Uh, Inter Milan had their own uh, monetary situation that they had to deal with, and then they had to part ways uh, – because of that, because Conte knew that this team was just going to kind of fall off. They weren't going to have the ambition that he had. So if Tottenham can match monetarily Antonio Conte's ambition, then sure, this is a huge improvement. But if they don't, then they just brought in someone that also runs a three-back system like Nuno, uh, like Nuno Espirito Santos, a three-back-to-five-back system, uh, who will ultimately just leave after the 18-month contract that they gave him, or if not earlier, because he's not giving what he wants. So the good news is, is that Paratici um, did want him, and that apparently they're willing to give him a 100 million war chest for this winter window alone. So that does show that there is possibly signs that they're willing to invest into Conte and say, hey, take our team, improve it but I'm, I'm just nervous because Tottenham hasn't been known for just splurging splurging on money historically so I, I think it's a concern it's just as much of do does Tottenham want to win that's basically what it comes down to if Tottenham wants to win the sky's the limit 
if Tottenham are willing to just, you know, kind of flounder as they have for years, then it's just not going to be anything great. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. So, also, with that being- um, yeah, I, I, I am interested for this upcoming week of matches with the, the Manchester Derby coming up and uh, some other top six matchups. You have Liverpool and West Ham too. So it's going to be an exciting uh, week of uh, matches for the Premier League. I'm very scared about that, but uh, that will definitely be talked about more here on the podcast. But moving into the NFL side of it, uh, we'll just do a little bit of a quick fantasy waiver wire. I don't know how much fantasy you do. I know you are in our 20-man league um, of 4334 Sports, uh, in which one thing I will shout out here quickly is Dan beat me this week. Up for Dan. Uh, Dan beat me in the 334 Sports uh, uh, like league that we have with 20 members of our organization. Uh, he beat me by five. I think it's the closest game I've had all year. Um, it is only my second loss of the year, but with a 20-team league, two losses is still going to be very scary. So I'm back in scary territory now. I guess we'll see what happens. Dan now has full control of our division again. So big shout out to him. Uh, do you, Will you have any waiver wire additions, or should I just kind of speed through some of these? Uh, I'll probably try and snag Adrian Peterson after getting after he got picked up by the Titans. Sure. Uh, this week, so with with how weak my uh my running back core is right now, <laughs> I having to like uh, Carlos Hyde was on by uh last week, and so I forgot to move him up this past Sunday. But I had to start Kyle Uzcheck. Yes, the fullback Kyle Uzcheck as as one of my main two running backs. So definitely hurting for some some action there. So hopefully. I can snag Adrian Peterson. Yeah, I mean, that's a big one. Um, to go ahead and hear, and I'll give a quick little rendition here. Uh, Quarterback-wise, Tuatunga Vailoa, he's been pretty solid in his first three games back. Buffalo wasn't great, but still it's Buffalo. So in all honesty, he actually put up a decent enough performance, getting a touchdown in the interception. Um, obviously, the interception would be the good part. But overall, he, he's been pretty good ever since returning uh, in that Jacksonville game. Um, being able to put up 200 yards against Buffalo is good, particularly when uh, once he got injured in Buffalo, uh, because that was the game that he did get injured at. Uh, Joe, Kobe Brissett wasn't able to do much, and they got shut out. So they have Houston this week at home, uh, and I think it might be a very offensive matchup with uh, Miami's defense definitely not being what it should be this year. Um, so him and honestly Tyrod Taylor, if they do put Tyrod Taylor back in, they might still run with Davis Mills after a solid um, fourth quarter performance from him. But I guess we'll see. They have also said that they, they're willing to commit to Tyrod. So we'll see what happens. I would definitely say to go after those two guys, though, quarterback-wise. Uh, in the running game, um, to also bring up a Tennessee running back, how about Jeremy McNichols, someone who has had a couple decent performances this year, but he's mostly a receiving back. Uh, that's where he had his biggest performance against the Jets. He had eight receptions off 12 targets for 74 yards. Um, so maybe not going to be a, like much of a runner for them, but maybe if his touches are going to increase a little bit, maybe like, let's say six carries a game. And he just gets involved a lot more on third down uh, on like third down drives, uh, plays and whatnot. Uh, you know, McNichols could be a good running back to reach for. I would also throw onto the running back list. Only one other name this week. 
actually two other names, uh, AJ Dillon, we've mentioned in the past. And I think that just his increasing role in green Bay, having three double carries this season is just showing that he could be a big piece uh, for your team. If you want to throw him in the flex. Uh, but then the other guy is going to be Boston Scott, only rostered in 5% of ESPN leagues. Last week had 12 touches for 60 yards and two touchdowns. Was the surprise uh, man to assert the uh, talent that Kenneth Gainwell has. Uh, the rookie wasn't really able to get anything last week, which was a big shock. But Boston Scott has been involved in this Philadelphia running game for a while. And I don't think the two touchdowns is an anomaly um you know maybe he won't be putting up two every week but that could show that he could be getting a good bit of touches from this philadelphia team could definitely be thrown in for running back desperate teams uh otherwise uh receivers there aren't really too many in all honesty the only one that i would really mention would be von jefferson and tajay sharp tajay sharp uh currently being the uh could become one of the top receivers in atlanta with um Calvin Ridley out for mental health issues, and hopefully he gets better. Um, Von Jefferson also being up there with Sean Jackson uh, being waived by the Rams today. And otherwise, that's really it. Really nothing to tight end-wise. Defense-wise, you can kind of we, – we, Dan and I talk about it this week, uh, every week. Defense-wise is kind of you, – you can kind of sort those. You'll kind of see, like, oh, who's the bad offense, who's the good uh, – uh, really good defense, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's the current fantasy list, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens moving forward, of course, with that type of stuff, and hopefully you do well in your leagues and get the players that you need to get. So with that, with that out of the way, let's go get into one more thing before we talk about the NFL games from this week. The NFL trade recap, um, I currently have here, I'm trying to count the names, six names listed. Uh, of those and we can talk about some of the more recent moves and we'll talk about definitely between these six which move was the biggest so let's start off here with the one that shocks the world yesterday Vaughn Miller to the Los Angeles Rams Sean sorry the the wi-fi was being slow uh all right, so I'll all good. Make it, yeah, we can we can make a note of that right after, uh, right as we get into the NFL trade place. Yeah, all good, man. Okay, so yeah, just uh, can you bring me in again? Yeah. <clears throat> so the one surprise trade from uh, like this trade uh, deadline of that being Von Miller from the. Denver Broncos to the Los Angeles Rams. Deshaun, how are we looking at this first trade here of the six that we're going to talk about? I mean, this was very surprising, honestly. Um, I I didn't know what Denver necessarily had in mind with this. I think they sort of assume at this point now that the season is going downhill from the initial high that they had of being 3-0. and um, I think this is pretty good compensation for uh, them in, in terms of uh, trading away Von Miller. You get a second and third round pick next year from the Rams. You know how liberal the Rams are with their picks and trading them away. I don't, I think they've had maybe seven combined draft picks over the last 
two or three drafts maybe. Um, so they're, they're definitely, the, the Rams know how to build talent. So that's not really an issue for them. And in a season where Matthew Stafford is putting up MVP type caliber, caliber, excuse me, numbers, I think this is a great addition for them as well, because you really shore up the defense uh, as you sort of enter, I guess we're entering the second half of the season now, um, around, roundabouts. And so uh, as you approach a bye in the next two weeks for the Rams, you get some more hard opponents down the stretch. I think this is about just building depth and also uh, getting a veteran leader in the locker room. I think I think Von Miller is going to enjoy it in L.A., and uh, I wish the best for him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just really telling. I'm surprised that Denver didn't have any more, like, moves today of, like, Melvin Gordon or Kyle Fuller or Ronald Darby or anyone because, uh, obviously, Von was a huge leader in that locker room for them. Uh, one of the interesting things, which uh, was noted, I think, by Ian Rappaport, uh, was the fact that in his uh, farewell video to Denver, he listed, like, and talks about, I think, 50 staff members and players that he played with throughout his time in Denver, uh, just thanking them for his time there. Um, definitely a really good way to go out and kind of highlighting that many people. Um, I definitely think he liked it there, but he and Denver probably have different aspirations. And on top of that, Denver's kind of entering rebuild mode. So why not give probably one of your best players of all time a chance to, you know, be able to get another ring and the LA Rams are ring chasing. Um, I mean, their Twitter account ironically posted something about being all, all in um, a little bit of a betting gif on their Twitter, but I mean, they certainly are. If you go ahead and look at their draft class, even just for this coming draft, uh, from what they currently have, when I looked it up online, they only have a third, a fifth, and two sevenths. Their draft class is barren for this coming year. So Yeah, that sounds about on par with the Rams. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, though, like, yeah, that is on par with the Rams. The Rams love to use their picks to go and trade and make big moves. So it's not too surprising. It's just it's crazy how barren it is. So like, I feel like the Rams would be willing to get rid of a whole draft class just to get a ring. It makes sense. Um, and I can understand it, but this is just a ginormous move. One of the best defensive players of his generation now being paired alongside Aaron Donald, who's been one of the best defensive players of his generation and Jalen Ramsey, one of the best defensive players of his generation. You have three, like, all-star caliber players on that defense if that defense doesn't you know if that defense has an implosion like they had against uh houston in the fourth quarter this past weekend i'm gonna lose my mind yeah uh 100 and also uh on that note that you mentioned about uh denver you know not making more moves at the deadline there were actually rumors that they were going to try and trade away uh fuller they were uh looking for suitors all the way up until uh, the deadline, but unfortunately they they couldn't find anybody. Um, but they did they did end up trading away uh, another one of their cornerbacks, uh, Kerry Vincent Jr. to the Eagles for a sixth. So they are getting some uh, some decent compensation for this upcoming draft. So the the hope for the Broncos, I imagine, is to uh, definitely build a team for the future. They have a lot of great pieces there. Um, 
but uh, there are definitely some areas for improvement. I actually didn't even hear about the Kerry Vinson. Well, that's interesting. I remember Kerry Vinson. He was the just like this past year's draft class. Interesting. Wow. All right. Well, moving on from that and the interesting thing there, which, I mean, you know, a bit surprising that they go and move. Though it is a younger guy, they don't move fuller. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they waived him. because They just don't give him snaps. Uh, but the next guy who really wasn't being given snaps uh, and had a very interesting quote from, I'm pretty sure your, t- your team, Mike Tomlin, uh, <laughs> interesting quote from him today, Melvin Ingram getting traded from the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, to the Kansas City Chiefs. Definitely a good move for the Chiefs. Yeah, I would think so. I would argue, and maybe me being, maybe this is the optimist inside of me as being a Steelers fan, but I think that this is a decent move for both teams. Sure. Now, the the Chiefs, it's without question, they need, need, need defensive help. And uh, I think Melvin Ingram can definitely uh, have an impact there. You get a, a strong pass rush. Uh, and you can sort of make up for the uh, the lack of secondary behind you. I believe, I forgot which year it was, it might be uh, the 2018 Steelers that I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. where we had a, a tremendous defensive line, great pass rush, but our secondary was lacking. And and we, you know, we, we pretty much just had Joe Hayden back there and nobody else. So it it can definitely buy you more time. If you can get after the quarterback with speed very quickly and continue to harass him in the pocket, then that's also very good defense. It's the equivalent to just having lockdown corners. And so you can you can help out the secondary that's been absolutely battered and bruised uh, this, this season and, and getting uh scored on all the time so i think this is a great move for the chiefs for the steelers now we have we have a great edge rusher in tj watt the highest paid edge rusher in the league i mean great is honestly an understatement and on the other side after having lost bud dupree last year to injury and eventually free agency um, we had to replace him with uh, one of our draft picks, I believe last year, and Alex Highsmith. And he has shown uh, mm-hmm. tremendous promise so far. I, I've been thoroughly impressed with him. I'm, I'm very glad that he is on the other side of the ball uh, as Watt. And Ingram, I mean, there wasn't, there, there wasn't a ton of action that he was getting. He was mostly just on the, on the field uh, when you know, to, get, to give TJ Watt or uh, Alex Highsmith breathers. So he wasn't really a primary uh, defensive weapon for us. Um, and he was injured this past week. It didn't seem like he would be playing that often. And there are some uh, some places on Twitter that said that he wouldn't really be playing another down for the Steelers, barring any injury. And I, I mean, I find that a little surprising to, to say, but I, I think that is very reasonable that Ingram wouldn't really be playing for us for the rest of the season that much. And with the injury, I think a sixth round pick is decent compensation for sort of a, an older defensive uh 
end. And I, I think that was solid compensation. Now that does weaken our depth a little bit. And that does have me a little worried, but you know, there's the big if, if we have our edge rushers stay healthy, I don't really think that this is going to be too big a deal. And if we can turn that sixth round pick into uh, something similar to what we got with Trey Norwood this year, then I think we can definitely say that we won the trade. Sure. And speaking of uh, sixth round picks, how about a pair of those that were able to fly away? Or actually, I think there may have been a slightly different conversation for one. We'll talk about both the Panthers cornerbacks that were traded prior to the trade deadline, Stefan Gilmore and CJ Henderson. Yeah, those, those were honestly picks I really like to see. The Stefan Gilmore to the Panthers trade was uh, honestly one of the trades I like the best out of any of these. The Panthers, I mean, they got out to another hot start to the season. They were 3-0. and They lost a real close one to Dallas. They choked one against Philly, and then they lost one in overtime to Minnesota. So their losses have been close. You know, ideally, you would have liked to see them come out on the um, winning side of those uh, situations. But, you know, those you still had sort of, uh, some confidence in the Panthers. But then they got absolutely beat on last week by the Giants, 25 to 3, absolutely humiliated. And that that's when you started to worry, oh, no, you know, Carolina's sort of faltering again. And you add. Uh, I believe it's 2019 Defensive Player of the Year, Stefan Gilmore in the secondary. And you can really, uh, you know, tighten up that defense. They had given up 36 to Dallas, 34 to Minnesota, 25 to the Giants. And with him, with, with Gilmore coming off of injury now, I think that's a welcome addition to these, uh, to the Panthers defense. Uh, Absolutely, and, particularly like, you know, the for six round pick is incredible. The, 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 like getting Gilmore for the six was crazy to me. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if he will stay in Carolina. I'm pretty sure isn't he only the last year of his contract, second to last. I mean, I think that'll be interesting. Um, I, I, I kind of expect he could, particularly with how good that defense is. But um, obviously the defensive side of that Carolina ball uh, looking a lot better than the offensive side of that ball. Um as there's been a lot of struggles there, insane value for both Henderson and Gilmore players who've already been contributing to that Carolina secondary, um, in which were able Carolina was able to get a win last week against Atlanta against Dan and I's uh, predictions there. Um, so very interesting, um, and very good from Carolina. Uh, now to move next up into another veteran that got moved, uh, a former Super Bowl winner. How about Zach Ertz going to Arizona? I think that was also pretty decent value for them. Yeah, I really like that trade for both parties involved. Um, you know, the Cardinals get another pass-catching weapon to aid that already prolific offense. It sort of, uh, it, they, they struggled against Green Bay. That was a little unfortunate, but I think that when you add him uh, to a, a sort of barren tight end room it wasn't barren necessarily but it they didn't have any uh major like game breaking tight ends so i think that sure. you definitely you you get a huge weapon in zach Ertz, 
who, you know, he, he's sort of a more uh, veteran player. The, the Cardinals have been sort of stacking uh, those types of players a lot this year. They, they've gotten A.J. Green. They've gotten J.J. Watt. So they, they've gotten sort of those older players who can still bring the heat, still have that talent. And I think this it's been a recipe for success so far. They're still uh, seven and one, I believe. So I, I, I really like the trade for them. On the Eagles side, you know, this is not, it's, it's a lost year sort of for them. They have put up good performances against uh, Tampa Bay, Kansas City, and Las Vegas. They managed to uh, beat Carolina on the road and absolutely thrashed Detroit this past week. Philadelphia has never really been out of any of their games. They've been competitive at the very least in all of them. But it's clear that there's a lot of progress that this team needs to make. And I think uh, getting a corner, Tay going, and a fifth round pick is pretty decent compensation. Sure. I mean, I can see that. And um, certainly, I mean, this is more favoring Arizona than Philly, obviously, as Philly's kind of in a weird rebuilding-esque kind of phase. But if you also look at it as well, um, if you also look at it as well, like Max Williams was actually doing a pretty excellent job for Arizona recently, like like before he got injured, like he was starting to become one of uh, Kyler Murray's more preferred targets but then obviously got injured and was out for the season. So they want to find a replacement for that. They get it in Zach Ertz and Ertz is someone that is definitely more talented. No offense to Max Williams. I mean, Ertz has literally been one of the best tight ends in the NFL uh, when he was uh, with Philadelphia. And now you can kind of rely on Ertz less uh, more than you were willing to with Williams. So Williams was starting to get there. So yeah, I mean, Ertz was a big one. And finally, a quick one, honestly, nothing too big. It's just good for depth. Uh, Mark Ingram going back home to New Orleans. Yeah, and at the time of the trade, it was more so a, a another weapon for Jameis Winston. Now, the Saints don't really have uh, the pass-catching core that they've had in recent years. Michael Thomas still dealing with injury. They had Emmanuel Sanders. Um, it, they've had plenty of weapons in the past, but they this year it's been severely lacking. And Taysom Hill was a lot of the was getting a lot of touches early on in the season before he ultimately sustained an injury against Washington. So this was more so meant to drop the backfield, give a, another big weapon behind Kamara and also potentially give Winston a pass-catching option. Now, as, as we've learned this past week, Winston tore his ACL and had severe damage to his MCL as well. So his season has been completely shut down, which is unfortunate because the, the Saints, the post-Breeze Saints were sort of up in the air and the, the Status was really unknown as to how they would perform, what the new offense would look like. And I thought for a, you know, a decent bit that the Saints were actually finding something that was working for them. Winston had uh, evolved as a quarterback and was not making the same careless mistakes and just 
you know, the double-edged sword with gunslinging is that, yeah, you're, you're throwing your shredding defenses for insane amount of yards, but you're also throwing risky passes. Winston has definitely cut down on that, maybe not by choice. It also has to do with the receivers he's had here versus Tampa Bay. But I, I definitely think that he's matured as a quarterback, and it sucks. My heart aches for him that he's not going to be able to finish the season. But I, I thought that was a good trade for the Saints to sort of bring back a familiar face. And the Texans, they got a late-round pick. It's not. It hasn't really been disclosed, I don't think, about what round pick it was. I Honestly, was a, I think it was a sixth, like, next season or something. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, you probably could have gotten a little bit more for him because Ingram. No, no, was, no, because he, he was just let go by Baltimore. Yeah, but he was also, I mean, Baltimore had a wealth of uh, running back talent too. I mean, they had Lamar, they had just, J.K. Dobbins, they had just drafted. So he was getting the lion's share of the carries. Ingram could still bring it. It's just that he wasn't getting as many touches. And so I feel like. They got much more for someone like Mark Ingram because he's at the end of his shelf life. And on top of that, he was going to be a backup anywhere else he goes, really. That is that is very true. Yeah. And I mean, he wasn't Mark Ingram was also splitting time with Philip Lindsay down in uh, Houston as well. So Lindsay and Johnson and now Rex Burkhead, who's kind of the, the leader, it looks like in Houston. Surprisingly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's crazy, crazy offense that he, uh, Houston's running down there. But yeah. It, it yeah it, it, it's a good move for I guess both teams involved and yeah, no clue what Houston is continuing to do down there but with that that's most of the big trades that happened uh during this uh like trade period mid-season the best one I mean clearly is Vaughn Miller um we'll see how it works out but uh I mean maybe Gilmore but I, I think Vaughn Miller's just a big impact for this season could be the thing that changes the tide here for the Rams. As for Zona, it's we're going to talk about here, um, just had their first loss. And at, with Zona having their first loss, the question that I think comes with it is what was exposed during that loss? Well, we sort of saw that there is definitely weaknesses to the Arizona offense. There are things that can be exploited because, I, I mean, so far this year outside of that game, Arizona has looked very unstoppable. They they absolutely thrashed Houston and Cleveland, which was you know a tad surprising, honestly. They humbled the Rams when the Rams also looked like they were gunning for the division title. Uh, and they outlasted Minnesota. And uh, in that thriller, that was a good one, too. So they've scored 30 plus in most of their games. And in this game against Green Bay, Green Bay has a, a, a above average defense. But I don't know if I would say that they have a defense that would restrict Arizona to just three touchdowns and no more. And I. Without Jair Alexander. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And so. I feel like Green Bay definitely escaped with a win there a little bit. I mean, they possessed the ball for a lot longer than Arizona. I think the breakdown was something close to 40 minutes for Green Bay as opposed to 24 Arizona. Um, 
it was just miscues Arizona uh, I think there are a couple turnovers I don't I might be recalling wrong I don't think the Packers had any and I think that Arizona had like three and that that was a little bit disappointing you know Mm-hmm. And eventually Arizona was able to sort of regain their footing and, and find their way. They were making the, they're making gains again in the second half. But yeah, it was just the the careless mistakes were what doomed Arizona a little bit. Sure. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with uh, definitely one of those, one of those, which I completely agree with you, which is the possession aspect of it. Now, I don't know what Arizona's possession aspects is looking like in other games, particularly because they had some drives that probably ended really quick. was like some bomb scores from Kyler and whatnot. Um, definitely DeAndre Hopkins, his being out for a good portion of the game wasn't great. Um, but Green Bay had 15 more minutes of possession compared to Arizona, which obviously cut out a lot of that offense and made it to where, you know, maybe they were less focused on the ground and more focused on the pass because, you know, they had to get back into the game, particularly with the two interceptions from Kyler Murray. Um, Really the thing here that I noticed from this game is though it wasn't great, it's they let Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon run all over. A.J. Dillon put up um, what I think was his best performance of his career yet. I could be wrong. I mean, he's definitely had some – other decent performances down the line like this year, uh, as we talked about on the fantasy waiver wire. Um, but AJ Dillon had 16 carries for 78 yards, which is crazy to allow the backup running back to do that. Uh, but then Aaron Jones, on the other hand, had 15 carries for 59 yards and a touchdown. Not impressive, but oh, wait, he had seven receptions for 51 yards. So he accumulated over 100. Uh, he actually he accumulated exactly 110 yards the yards from scrimmage. So both running backs there combining for uh, scrimmage yards, that would be 188. I want to see if AJ Dillon had any receptions himself. He did not. Uh, so they had, you know, just a little bit shy of 200 yards per scrimmage. And when you look at Arizona, when you're going to be coming up against teams, I mean, for one, this shows that they really were, I think, I think it really shows that they escaped um, from that Cleveland loss with uh, Nick Chubb not being healthy for that game. Uh, because I think if Nick Chubb was healthy, that could have been a different game if they would have run the possession in Cleveland. But if you look at them, like with the Panthers, uh, McCaffrey's expected to be back soon. Uh, with the Bears, you have Montgomery and Herbert. Uh, with the Rams, you've got Daryl Henderson. The Lions, I mean, they, they, they have DeAndre Swift, but eh. the Colts have Jonathan Taylor. Uh, the Cowboys have Ezekiel Elliott, like you have some pretty decent running teams that are going to be coming up against you uh, during this closing stage of the season. Um, so, yeah, I think this definitely causes a little bit of concern for Arizona because it feels like that that could be the weak point of this team is being able to run on them. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's mostly what we looked at that. Um, I don't know if you've seen our pick segment here, uh, but that is our currently the next question is because Dan and I had one of our worst weeks for picks. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you the four games and you can just kind of give an instant reaction. I can explain mine. Um, but Dan and I got wrong the uh, Pittsburgh Cleveland game. We both took Cleveland, Atlanta, Carolina, both took Atlanta, New England, Los Angeles. We both took Los Angeles in Tampa Bay, New Orleans. We both took Tampa Bay. Is there one of those that you think was really bad compared to the others? 
Uh, well, to, to start off, I will also say that I also had one of my worst pick weeks uh, of the season. And all of those games that you just listed, I also picked wrong. So I was with you guys in that boat. Um, so that will be your worst pick of that week. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I don't think any of those were necessarily too egregious. I see why you picked all of those teams. For me, I think uh, the biggest uh, pick miss of the week for any of us, and I'm not sure if you guys also picked them, but I, I assume we all picked the Bengals to beat the Jets because you have the the number one seed at the time in the AFC taking on the Jets who had just been blown out by 41 points by the Patriots. And you didn't have their starting quarterback. They're trotting out Mike White for his first career start. And he absolutely shreds Cincinnati. And I think that, that was, that was sorry, the sort of the, um, the biggest upset and the worst pick for all of us. Uh, I mean, if we would have predicted that, certainly it would have been. Um, but we only predict like about half the games from the NFL that was not on that list. Fair for enough. Us. Um, I think for me, I know which one's my least favorite, and it's because I thought that it was a possibility. And on the podcast, I was literally tossing and turning of whatever I wanted to do or not. This New England versus LAC. I said so much yeah. that I thought that New England was going to win, and I thought like I was probably a second away from really saying New England, but I decided to stick with the Chargers since they were coming off the bye and they had something to prove when I've been talking about that this New England team is a lot better than people, like, than their record says. Yeah. And yeah. lo and behold, I was right, and I didn't go with my gut. And my gut was saying New England, but everything else was saying Los Angeles. It's just a big lesson of my gut actually tends to get a lot of things right. So I got to go with my gut a lot more. That I do. Yeah, I yeah I definitely agree with you there. I was I was weighing a lot for that game too. I yeah, like you mentioned, the Chargers they had been absolutely blown up by the Ravens right before their bye week, so they they had extra time to prep, a little extra rest, and were I assumed they would be ready to take on New England at home, and for some reason they they faltered towards the end of the game as well. It just it wasn't a clean performance that we expected from them. And now with two consecutive losses, they sort of find themselves in a little bit of trouble in the AFC playoff race. Absolutely. Now for what Dan would call this as he's here, welcome into the Colts radio. I'm Colts fan Colby on Bergstrom. And we're going to talk about how mad I am at this team. And more specifically, how mad I am that we've lost another overtime game. Um, any comments that you'll have for me, please you, you give them like once I'm, you know, done with this. But this is, Dan said I've, I've ranted on the Colts on this podcast. I don't think I really have. I, I, I will up my team, though. Um, I'm ranting on this one. Yeah. Take the wheel. So here's my first question here for uh, Frank Reich in particular, how has Jonathan Taylor not had 20-plus rushes in one game? He has not had 20-plus rushes in a singular game this season. If you look at, like, every single one, the highest he's had is 17. He had 17, I, th- I think. He had 17 against Seattle. You have 15 against Los Angeles. Uh, in the both performances against Tennessee, you have 10 in the first one, 10 
at Tennessee, and then you have 16 in this one. You go ahead and look at Miami. Uh-oh, he has 16 carries. You go ahead and look at Baltimore. Yeah, looking at every game. Uh-oh, 15 carries. You go ahead and look at Houston. Wow, 14 carries. Uh, though he actually had a really good performance there. And, I mean, actually, he's had good performances in most of these games, but he, then he had 18 carries against San Francisco. He's not had one, one game. They just had 20-plus rushes. And I'm pretty sure if I was to go and look at Tennessee and rants off their carries, I'm pretty sure Derrick Henry has had 20-plus, if not 25-plus carries in every game he played. Now, we'll talk about Derrick Henry a little bit more after this because, of course, he is now out for a while. But still, the, the fact that Jonathan Taylor has not had a singular game with 20-plus carries is very aggravating when he has been one of the best running backs in the NFL. Oh, wait, he's actually the second best running back in the NFL in yards behind, uh-oh, Derrick Henry, a man who, if you actually go ahead and look at the stat list, has almost 100 more attempts than him. What, 100 more? He has 219. Taylor has 121. And Taylor's behind him by under 300 yards. He's averaging 1.1 yards more than Derrick Henry per carry. Like, are you kidding me? What, what, what else is Jonathan Taylor supposed to do to show Frank Reich that he is the foundation of this team's offense? It's ridiculous to me. And, like, neutrals should be just as confused. I know neutrals that are just as confused. Like, what am I supposed to say to them as a Colts fan? Like, oh, yeah, no, Frank Reich knows what he's doing. I can't say that when Jonathan Taylor – the second leading rusher in the NFL, someone who's probably going to become the leading rusher with Derrick Henry's injury, is not getting the touches that he deserves. It's very irritating. That's the first point. Jonathan Taylor has not had a single game with 20-plus rushes. Actually, I will add a little bit more to Jonathan Taylor, which is the real thing that gets me mad, too, is that in the fourth quarter, uh, in the fourth quarter in overtime, I think Jonathan Taylor only had four touches. And that's not rushing, that's just in general. Maybe three. Whereas Carson Wentz in the fourth quarter plus overtime had 16. This isn't anything against Carson Wentz. We'll talk about Carson Wentz. But the fact that Jonathan Taylor has four touches when it's clutch time. Only four? Really? Really? And you you guys gave up, you know, you, you guys were down, like, tied the game with a touchdown late from Jonathan Taylor, which was one of his few touches. But the fact that Jonathan Taylor had that few then, really, in clutch time, I'm pretty sure they gave Marlon Mack touches in the fourth quarter too, which is ridiculous. I digress. That is my statement on Jonathan Taylor. The end of that, is Jonathan Taylor, in, in, unless we dominate the Jets, in which if we do that, Evan Hughes, I'm sorry. But unless we dominate the Jets from the get-go, Jonathan Taylor has to have 20 touches in that game, period. I'm not going to stand for a single game this season where Jonathan Taylor doesn't have 20-plus touches unless we actually blow out the team, unless we beat them by two-plus drives, period. I, I cannot settle for anything else. Second point, the Colts need perimeter help. 
in a game where Derrick Henry was banged up and though he came back out, uh, he had an injury that is now going to leave him out for most of the rest of the season. Um, you know, Derrick Henry not really being able to provide enough for the Tennessee Titans. Oh, yeah, he rushed for two less yards per carry, though he had 12 more carries than Jonathan Taylor. Add that up. Um, crazy. I mean, sure, he was injured, but still crazy. Um, yeah, the first touch or second touchdown that Tennessee had in this game to tie the game up at 14-14 with A.J. Brown, Xavier Rhodes was a burnt piece of toast. I remember the issues that Minnesota were having with him, which is why I was a little bit concerned with Xavier Rose being our number one. And then last year, he actually kind of got away from those concerns. He was really impressive in his first year. This year, he hasn't been. Now, it's not like he's been horrible this year. It's not like I'm so like I'm saying, get him out of here. Like, he's been okay. He's been able to draw at least one turnover, maybe multiple. But... He hasn't been great, and on that play, if you go and look up the clip of A.J. Brown scoring that six, uh, that almost 60-yard touchdown, look at what Xavier Rhodes does. He doesn't make an actual attempt at all at trying to tackle him. He basically just gives him a shoulder rub and says, hey, yeah, yeah go, the, go the rest of the way. That's fine. You're good. Bye-bye. If that doesn't show you that we need perimeter help and that we need to commit to getting perimeter help, whether that's in the offseason or in the draft, Someone's blind in Indy because we need it desperately. Sure, we have Julian Blackman, but Julian Blackman's out injured for a good portion of the season. He was out injured for that game. Sure, we have Kari Willis, but Kari Willis is, you know, they, I think he's a strong safety, so it's really going to be less coverage and just more talent, though I, I think he has good coverage capabilities. I think he had like a few picks last year or something. I digress. Um, we just don't have the talent there. We, we don't. So that's really infuriating as well um on top of that the one thing that the neutrals have done which i disagree with don't blame carson Wentz. don't blame him um here's why the reason i'm saying not to blame carson Wentz is because frank reich had him throw 50 times Carson doesn't run the offense. Frank Reich runs the offense. He's the play caller. So the fact that Carson Wentz had 50 passing attempts isn't purely Carson. It's going to be mostly Frank. Um, and though the first interception is really bad, the one where Elijah Molden put it in uh, on two yards, um, you also need to realize that Frank Reich came into the media and said that, that was all his fault in that he had a horrible play call. So that's like the second or third time that Frank's come out and said something about his having a horrible play call this season, which is bad enough. But that's why I'm saying don't put this game on Wentz because I, I didn't see a second interception, but the first one, it was ultimately a hard situation to get out of, though he could he probably should have just thrown it outside. And granted, if you look at that next drive, we were able to tie it up pretty quickly. So that's why I'm saying that this game isn't fully on Wentz. Wentz has been pretty impressive this year. If you go ahead and look at his stat line, he has, you know, almost 2,000 yards, 62% completion, averaging seven yards uh, a, a pass. Um, and he has 14 touchdowns and three interceptions. Um, 
the, the amount of sacks that he's had should go down, but I think they actually have been going down since the first couple of games. Um, and obviously one, if not two of those interceptions shouldn't have happened uh, this season, but still like he's thrown less interceptions than Justin Herbert. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of players that I can list that he's thrown less interceptions than like he's thrown less than Tom Brady. He's thrown way less than Patrick Mahomes. He's thrown less than Murray or less than Tannehill. If you look at interceptions, I'm actually going to try to pull this up here on ESPN. If you look at interceptions, Carson Wentz is actually towards the top in starting quarterbacks. And the starting quarterbacks that have the least interceptions this year, uh, surprisingly enough, um, so here, here's the list. Russell Wilson with one, but he's been out for a little bit. Kirk Cousins is the active leader with two. And then he's then it's Carson Wentz, Aaron Rodgers, and then Jameis Winston all tied on three. Uh, now, I don't know how many fumbles he's had. He's maybe had one or two. But that's why I'm saying this game isn't on Wentz. And that's what leads me to my last point on this rant. I'm about done with Frank Reich. He's had multiple horrendous play calls this year. This is the second time we've lost in overtime. The first one being because we choked against Baltimore. And on top of that, everything else that I've talked about, the fact that we needed perimeter help for years and we really haven't done anything about it. We had Xavier Rhodes. We got a surprise stun, Isaiah Rogers. We got good safeties, but we haven't actually gone in free agency and done anything about it. Um, the fact that he doesn't seem to know when to force it to Wentz and when not to, uh, including in that Baltimore game when Wentz was the hot hand uh, on that third and eight, he didn't do anything. Instead, he just decided to um, he just decided to run the ball on the third and eight, if I remember right, which is an embarrassing call. And then, and, and no, no. And then what happened was then he went with a field goal with Drigo, who he knew had a hip issue, and then he missed the field goal. So that's a horrible decision that he made. He made another horrible decision on the Wentz interception, which he came out and talks about. Frank Reich has had a lot of play calling mistakes. If you look at it over the past two years alone, he had play calling mistakes over Buffalo that could have possibly won us the game, or at least would have made it a little bit closer. Obviously the Tennessee game, we should have won that. The Baltimore game, we should have won that. We choked it in the fourth quarter. I mean, again, go look at that Baltimore box score. They scored two touchdowns in the fourth quarter to us having a singular field goal. If we literally would have just had one more field goal, if we would have scored a touchdown on that drive with Carson Wentz, when Wentz was looking good on that drive too, we win that game. We're 4-4 four four right now. Um, the Rams game was bad. We had a really horrible shovel call um, that, technically speaking, could have been the reason we lost the play at the game. My... <laughs> The fan base, as well as myself, are starting to reach a boiling point with Reich. And if Reich can give JT 20-plus rushes in the game, and he doesn't overwork Wentz. Uh, now, obviously, we can't really get perimeter help unless someone goes and, like, cuts one of their corners. But if he can do those things, not only will the team get back on track, I think, but I think that Reich will get back on track, and fans will be happy with him again. However, if he can't, I don't think I can make many more excuses for him. I like him. I think he's a great coach. I think he's got a great personality. 
but, and I think he's built a great culture for us. But I'm about at the point where if he doesn't start doing what he should be doing with this team, he's got to go, period. This should be a playoff team. We should have a split series with Tennessee, and we don't. This this is a team that should be five and three, possibly six and two, possibly. We we should be at that point, and we aren't. Two of those games purely on Frank Frank. Yeah, I um, I I definitely agree with a lot of the points that you made there. Um. I, I understand it can be very frustrating with everything that's gone on in the season. I do have one question for you, yeah. um, and that is, how much do you think injuries have played a role in the, in the way that the Colts' season has sh- uh, shaken down so far? Well, it's played a lot. I, I, I do think injuries have played a lot. I mean, that seems to be a pretty general issue with the Colts' injuries. Um, it has been, like, ever since I've been a fan of them. But uh, – yeah, I mean, Quentin Nelson's been banged up uh, for a couple games this season, uh, and apparently he might be banged up and not be able to play for the New York Jets game. I'm not too concerned about it, but it is definitely a bit worrying. Um, obviously, Braden Smith's been out until I think just this past game, uh, so that was an issue. Uh, I think Lowinski was injured at one point, uh, but then Chris Reed just kind of shown that he's better than him. I don't remember, though. Uh, Eric Fisher had to come back in off of injury, and he's been dreadful. Uh, obviously, the Julian Blackman injury that we talked about, Darius Leonard, I think, was out for a game, maybe. Um, you've had injuries here, there, and everywhere. Um, I think it's definitely done something. I think it's definitely not been beneficial for us, particularly when Xavier Rhodes is out for, like, the first three games of the season. However, the injuries didn't matter in the – particularly in the games I mentioned. Tennessee and Baltimore, those injuries didn't matter. Really what would have mattered was L.A., I th- which is the other game I think that we could have turned if not for horrible decision-making. I think that that one, maybe the injuries mattered. I know we had a lot of injuries week one, week two, and we really started to get healthy by the time Miami came around. But, yeah. That, that's most of the stuff with injuries. Like, it has played a part, but not quintessential. Like, it's, it hasn't been the key thing. It's a lot been on Frank Wright. Yeah, I can definitely understand your frustration there. And I think that might go to a little bit of the frustration we talked about in the last episode with, uh, with Michigan fans and, and Harbaugh. Not necessarily for the same reasons, but um, definitely in the same sort of way that Losing games that you should be winning if you want to be a serious football team. It's definitely a negative uh, time for uh, like, like a negative period for a lot of fans. I think Wright can get out of this. I think Wright can help himself, but it's he literally all he has to do is help himself. That's it. He's helping himself by giving Jonathan Taylor more rushes. So I, I don't know what the issue is with that. Um, but to move to the other side of this game, as the Colts rant is officially over, um, the Tennessee Titans, the question for them is without Derrick Henry, the focal point of this offense, do they hold on to, or can they hold on to the NFC, AFC South? 
Uh, to be honest, I don't really know. Just because looking ahead at the schedule, now they do have the double tiebreaker over the Colts, as you mentioned. So that is definitely a big plus because the Colts are the only team in the division that can absolutely threaten them. Yep. Um, so in effect, you have a four-game lead over the Colts because they currently hold a three-game lead and that would not be enough. Um, looking down the stretch with, without Henry, their first test is against the Rams. Now that's the Rams are going to be a brutal team to face again, you know, in any situation, but without Henry, without the, like, I guess, identity of your offense, it's, it's going to be darn near impossible. And I fully expect the Rams to come away with a win there on Sunday night football. Looking ahead. I mean, they do have, they have the Saints the week after that, which is going to be interesting to see because they also lost a major part of their offense, Jameis Winston. So it'll be interesting to see how Trevor Simeon takes over the reins and uh, how he can manage Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara and the, the receivers that they have over there. So that one is going to be interesting. But after that, they do have uh, a nice little stretch with the Texans. The Patriots is going to be a tough one, but then they also have the Jags as well. Um, they actually they face the, te- the Texans twice to uh, in the remaining games of the season. So that is definitely a huge plus for them. I, I don't know if they can hold on to the AFC South. It's going to depend a lot on the the pass game, obviously. And Tannehill has shown that he can sling the ball and, and they're, they're a good passing team as well. Even if, you know, Derrick Henry doesn't rush for a ton of yards, they still have a ton of receiving options. They have AJ Brown recently acquired Julio Jones mentioned, uh, forgot whether it was earlier in this episode or last episode, but they have McNichols who is a running back, but more of a pass catching back. And I think that he is, uh, sort of underrated in the uh, in the past game. Josh Reynolds is a solid um, lower down receiver on the Titans. And they have uh, a decent-ish defense. It's sort of up and down. Really don't know what to make of it, honestly. Um, so I think that they can definitely hold their own and I think that they can, with the recent acquisition of Adrian Peterson, I definitely think that helps. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what they will be able to do in the past game because now defenses won't have to worry about this absolute mountain of a man that's going to be barreling out of the backfield every week. They can focus more on the past. That might limit the Titans' offense effectiveness. I definitely think that they're going to make this division a lot closer than it should be. I think it's very possible that we see um, the AFC South be within one or two games by the end of the season. Because like I mentioned earlier, in effect, it is currently four games for Tennessee, given that they have the double tiebreaker. I think it'll narrow down to one, maybe two games. Now, I expect slash hope that it's going to be down to one or two games by the end of the year. And I I, I think 
there is a big chance that Tennessee does slip, but let's think about it like this. So I'm going to go and assume that Derrick Henry is going to be out the rest of the season. Now it's been said maybe six to 10 weeks. It said that he could be back for the playoffs. Let's assume he's out for the whole year, right? Um, Rams, I, sorry, Rams are going to smoke you next week. It is, it's not even a question. Sunday night football is going to be dreadful because you have Va- the addition of Von Miller. The Rams are pretty healthy and they're a team that's good at limiting the pass. And if your primary objective is going to be the pass, you're torched. The Saints Especially games, when they're trying to figure it out, too. They're gonna, yeah. It's going to be a lot of experimentation. Exactly. It's, it, honestly, it's, it's probably going to be like 30 to 3. Like, it'll genuinely be a blowout. And it's not going to be really because of Tannehill or Frable. But as you said, they have to figure out their offense. Next up is the Saints. The Saints is a bit of a toss-up. But I don't know. I think they, the Saints can beat them. But rather than going by game, we talked about the first two. Let's talk about this instead. They do have a four-game lead on the Colts, which was a great observation. They have the double tiebreaker, um, or they, they hold a tiebreaker no matter what because they didn't have, you know, a, a, a loss to them. And they are ahead currently by three games, but that would make it four because the Colts would have to one-up them to win the division. So here, let, 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 let me say this. The Titans have, as you said, Houston twice on their remaining schedule. The Jacksonville Jaguars, the Miami Dolphins. All four of those teams are bottom teams in the NFL. They all have one win. So let's say that they do what is expected of them and not only sweep the division, but then they also beat the Dolphins. Then you're looking at a 10-win team. Even if they lost every single one of their games after that, they would be 10-7. However, with that, that means the Colts would have to be 11-6, and six, in which is possible, but that means that the Colts have to win eight games. They'd have to go 8-1 and one rather than 7-2, and two, and right now a lot of the fan base is thinking 7-2. and two. So to me, the Titans would have to drop off like super hard for this to be even a race. So, I mean, honestly, even, even this, even if you say the Texans series is a split, because the Texans have actually surprisingly been good in some of their games. Let's say the Texans series is a split. Then the Colts still have to go and get seven wins to take the division. Either way, like this has become immensely harder because the Colts didn't, get the job done. If the Colts got the job done, I think this this division would be Indianapolis's because they'd only be two games back with no tiebreaker. But instead, Tennessee, or actually not two games back, I I flipped it because you have to do a two-game switch. They'd be one game back with no tiebreaker. But with losing both, they're three, they are four games back because Tennessee has a tiebreaker to winning this division. And Tennessee has four pretty easy opponents. So unless this Tennessee offense completely combusts, because their defense isn't that great in the first place, if their offense completely combusts, then the Colts have a chance. But I don't think that that happens. Yeah, so, I, I'm inclined to agree with you there. Yeah, I don't think it happens either. 
plus the, the Colts remaining schedule. I'm sure you're familiar with it. There are quite a few difficult opponents on there. No, but I think we can win those. That's not, that's not the issue. The Colts have actually been really good in the second half of the season. Fair enough. My, fair issue, enough. My, my issue is this. My issue is the fact of basically with Derrick Henry, they just went from having a 95% chance of winning the AFC South to me to probably going to like a 70%, which is a massive drop, but it's still a large majority of chance that they're going to win the division. So it cha- it changes a lot. It makes it to where it's a closer race, but it's not like ultimately that close. They would have to be dreadful and Indy would have to pull a miracle at the second half of this year to do it. And Indy can, and Tennessee can, but it's a stretch still. Yeah. To finally move away from the uh, Colson Tennessee matchup here, well, to move on to our third game talking about overall of the NFL uh, weekend. Um, now, the Bills did win this game. But Miami hasn't been looking as bad as we really expected them to uh, over these last three games with two, a half day. You know, is this, is this a team that could possibly bounce back a little bit here and start start to get like a, an odd win here or there? You know, I wonder because they did they did uh, lead to a more specifically, he did lead a comeback against the Falcons that inevitably failed it uh the young young quake who drove through the winning field goal but the dolphins have been in games recently and tua has been steadily improving which is encouraging to see but i I really don't know there's something missing especially on the defensive side of the ball you know with, with brian flores as your head coach you and you saw it in his first season as well. You sort of expect this the the defensive side of the ball to be the stronger side, and for that to sort of guide the team and allow the the offense to not necessarily do too much. They don't they shouldn't have to do too much. But you look at the opponents that they've played, and then they've played some tough opponents, but they've given up a lot of points: thirty-one to Las Vegas, thirty to Atlanta. Uh, they they lost 23 to 20 against Jacksonville and then they gave up 45 to Tampa Bay. So it seems like the defense is not living up to the hype um, that that we had at the start of the season. The offense is progressing, I will say though. And I think that Tua's definitely made a little bit of strides. He played a clean, relatively clean game against the Bills. Yes, he had uh, one interception, but I, I think that there is definitely some positives coming out of Miami. Um, I do think, though, that one thing that they need to do is they need to give Tua a quality rusher. Miles Gaskin has not really been doing it for him this season, and it it's it puts all the more pressure on a man who has been surrounded by trade rumors and criticism ever since being drafted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think that the team's definitely going to find some wins this year. I think they'll definitely find some form late. And here's the reason why. Um, if you look at like their last three games, they've actually been in it in those. They only lost the Jags by three out in London town. Uh, they lost to uh, the Falcons by two 
and then they lost the Bills by 15, which, you know, you might say, like, oh, that's not it. They're down three drive or two drives, but it's like they, they, they were shut out by the Bills earlier this year. Um, if you look at it as well, in the three games that two has been back, uh, they've only had one game where they conceded 30 points, where if you look at the games where Tua was gone, including Buffalo, because he's gone for most of that game, uh, they had three games where they gave up uh, 30 plus points, almost four with Indianapolis. So I think that with Tua, the game has become, or the offense has kind of been able to manage things better. I think the defense looks like it's got a little bit better, though granted they have technically played two weaker opponents, but not really weaker offensively for Atlanta. I digress. Um, but they're going to have Xavier Howard and Byron Jones, I think, returning relatively soon. If, if Xavier Howard's not already returned, then he probably will be for Houston. Uh, Byron Jones, I don't know how long his was because I think he went on to the IR like late September, early October. So I think once they get those two back and with the form that Tua seems to currently be in, I think that they can do well. I think that they can actually be surprising. I like I, I'm gonna say possible wins. I'm not gonna say that they are wins. I think this week against Houston is a possible win. I think two weeks from now against the Jets is gonna be a fun game. They also have another matchup against the Jets this season. Uh, the Panthers are a really bad team offensively, which gives anyone a chance. It's just gonna be a function of if the defense exposes Tua. The Giants, kind of the same thing, but they, they have a better off, way better offense and a little bit worse of a defense. And then I would surprisingly throw in there in the Titans. Not that I think they will, but just because with that Derrick Henry, they're on upset potential for just about every game. So that's it. So I would say naturally there are one, two, three, four, probably five games that they have a natural chance of winning. Not that like they're the favorites, but that they have a chance, more of a chance than we would have originally expected. So this team could come out and become, you know, like barely inside or just outside the top 10, one of the worst teams in the NFL, which is good comparatively to how they start. So, yeah, I think, I think they're not as bad as what their record shows them to be. I think they'll start to show it towards the second half of the year. They do have a very weak schedule for that second half of the year. Um, the next question I have for you here is what will Herbert's role, Khalil Herbert's role turn into once David Montgomery comes back here expected, you know, in the next like week or two, I think. I mean, Herbert has put up some of the best numbers in the NFL since taking over that starting role for Montgomery. And I, I read somewhere, I forgot what stat it was. Um, I, I think it was most rush yards from scrimmage or, or third most rush yards from scrimmage, second only to like Alvin Kamara and Derrick Henry or something like that. Okay. But uh, Herbert's been an absolute monster. Uh, Hokie fans are familiar with Herbert. He had a tremendous season last season uh, with Virginia Tech. So I, I, he definitely deserves the starting role. I don't think you can sit him back on the bench now once Montgomery comes back. I know there were trade talks uh, surrounding Montgomery, uh, especially after Derrick Henry got injured. They, a lot of Bears fans were saying, hey, maybe we can get some value from Montgomery. But, you know, Montgomery is a great back as well, and I don't think you can really relegate him to the bench either. I think that it's definitely 
with the trade deadline passed now, there's not really anything you can do. Uh, it would mostly, it would either be, you know, you have to release him, which would be not ideal, or you have to basically keep him on the bench for most of the time until next season, which could drop his trade value a little bit. So I think Chicago should have uh, dealt away Montgomery before the deadline because uh, Herbert is definitely running back number one material. I disagree, though. Like, Montgomery's been running back one material as well. And on top of that, if you look at the last four games from last year, he almost looks like, ironically, he was in for a Derrick Henry type of breakout. Because if you remember, like, before these last two three years of Derrick Henry dominance, he was kind of eh for Tennessee. Like he was good, but not like consistent. And then he had like a thing, like a span where he had was injured for like two games. And then he had four incredible games around out like his fantasy season. And then after that, he was just a monster. So in, in my mind, Montgomery was almost built in for me to have that potential. I digress though. Montgomery has been a solid running back for them, and he's shown it at times. Um, I don't know what communities you found that said that Montgomery should be traded, because that's very crazy to me. Um, I mean, obviously, both love Herbert. Uh, both love Kula Herbert. I've even said on the pod that I think he should be an RB1 in the future uh, for some team. Uh, it's just a function of who. Um, I don't think they should have ever traded Montgomery. They didn't. Um, and... I think when Montgomery comes back, he's the clear RB1. Now, here's what I do think. I do think that Herbert's the clear RB2, and I think Herbert's someone that could actually become the third down back because Justin Fields has shown, uh, I think, at least in one game, if not in two, that he's willing to toss the ball to Khalil, and Khalil um, it wasn't something he was known for Virginia Tech, but he was actually good at receiving the ball in that game. It was specifically Tampa. Um but Khalil just finds a way to get yards, whether it's in the air or whether it's on the ground. Khalil Herbert finds a way to get yards here for the Chicago Bears. Now, I, as I said, I still don't think it's enough for him to just surmount David Montgomery because Montgomery is a talented back and would be a running back one on a lot of teams right now. But it's enough to where I think he's earned himself a role as a consistent RB2, probably third down back. Uh, because I don't think they really wanted to use David Montgomery on third downs anyways. So I do think Herbert's established himself a role in Chicago, just not RB1, personally. I, I can see your argument. And I'm definitely, I, I may have downplayed uh, Montgomery a little bit there. I definitely, he's definitely a RB1 caliber back, no question about it. And, you know, he definitely deserves to be the starting running back at on, on some team. I just think that, you know, you, you, Chicago definitely could have gotten a lot of compensation for him and they could have used it to continue building up the team. Whereas Herbert, I mean, yes, he's a rookie and also running backs can be a little unpredictable. They can also, you know, one, one bad tackle and that can, you know, there goes your star back. But ever since he's been thrust into the starter role, he's absolutely dominated. He's um, he, I, I don't think he's had, let me just check. Yeah. He hasn't had below 70 yards rushing in his four games as a starter. Sure. And like you mentioned out of the backfield, he's also been a great receiver too. He's gotten, uh, what is it? Nine total catches for 40, 
four total yards, some quick math there. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's done well in many facets of the Bears offense. And even, even in that abysmal 38-3 blowout against the Buccaneers, he had a 100-yard rushing performance. So if you, I, I feel like the Bears would be more than comfortable getting or using Khalil Herbert as their main back. And then they could uh, have gotten, you know, a high round draft pick or another premier player uh, in a trade for Montgomery. I can agree, but I think it's an off season move, not a mid season move when that, that is fair point. Now, moving on from that point. Um, now my question here for this is what's the more notable headline that the Steelers won or that the Browns lost? Okay, so I'll do I'll do an impromptu uh, impromptu a little shorter uh, like Steeler segment real quick. So I'd say the more notable headline is the Browns losing. Now the Steelers definitely played up, I would say, in this game. And the Steelers are 100% finding a way to move the ball on offense. It was ugly to start the season. It seemed like a lot of remnants of the Randy Feekner offense, which a lot of Steelers fans dreaded. But now it seems like Matt Canada sort of taking the reins. You're starting to see his vision for the offense. And you're starting to see the ball, the ball move a lot more, both on the ground and in the pass game, even without Juju Smith-Schuster. So I think the Steelers have improved over the course of the season. However, uh, I mean, there were just so many opportunities for the Browns to win this past week, and they blew it. Um, you have, I, I, I am struggling to recall, but I'm pretty sure on the broadcast I saw uh, the graphic being put up that said it was the first time all season that uh, Baker Mayfield, OBJ, Jarvis Landry, and Nick Chubb were taking snaps at the exact same time. And I think David Njoku too. And so when you have all your stars on the field, especially on offense, you expect to put up more points than just 10 points. They only move the ball effectively on their opening drives of each half. They got a, they they marched down the field to start the game. They managed to get a field goal. The, the Steelers defense held uh, strong in the red zone. And then coming out of the half, they managed to just drive down the field and score a touchdown. That was a go-ahead touchdown at the time. Um, but they eventually surrendered the lead. I, I don't see how you could allow such... Uh, a, an abysmal offensive performance. I don't think that they rushed Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt as often as they should have, which is surprising because we've talked about this. Pretty sure a lot of people have talked about what a scary two-headed monster that uh, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt are, but they combined for, uh, or excuse me, I, I, I think I might have forgot. Yeah, I don't think Kareem Hunt was playing. Um, but they also had Dearness Johnson, who uh, in the absence of both those running backs, he put on a dominant performance against Denver. 
and combined, Nick Chubb and Dearness Johnson only rushed 20 times for less than 100 yards. And so you can't, you can't allow that to happen. Additionally, I mean, Baker put the ball in the air quite a bit, especially coming off of injury. It was a little bit surprising to me. But it was it was definitely his receivers that cost him down the stretch. There were costly drops. I remember seeing it. I, I obviously was enjoying myself because, you know, I'm a Steelers fan. So it, it, was, it was quite funny for me to see. But it was if I was a Browns fan, I can imagine it would be insanely frustrating to see I, I, maybe three drives, possibly more killed based off of costly drops. I, I remember there was one late in the game that Cleveland had. They were down in the red zone. I think they were threatening to score at the end of the game. And uh, Jarvis Landry fumbled in the red zone. And that is a crucial mistake that you can't have. I think that Cleveland uh, beat themselves more than Pittsburgh beat Cleveland. They definitely played mistake-free football. Ben threw a little bit of risky, uh, a couple of risky passes. Uh, Tomlin trotted out Boswell uh, at the end of this first half and attempted a fake field goal. That was, I mean, I even if it had worked, I would never have tried that because of how low scoring and physical the game was up until that point. I would have 100% taken the points. And the fact that we lost Chris Boswell for the rest of the game only amplified that. Um, but Najee, Najee Harris on the ground was phenomenal. Our jet sweeps with Claypool and McLeod, those were fantastic. Um, there were some clutch catches, clutch performances. Deontay Johnson stepping up. That was a big performance from him this past Saturday, or Sunday, excuse me. Friermuth with that incredible catch in the end zone, bobbling with the toe tap. Uh, so overall, I, I want to say that it's more indicative of a failure on Cleveland's part than it was a success on Pittsburgh's part. I think Pittsburgh definitely played a, a great game and it should be commended. But I think that this was this loss was more specifically on Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, this I, I think that's definitely the better a bigger headline is that the Browns lose. Now, granted, they have had a lot of injuries. Uh Mayfield coming off one of his own. Um Kareem Hunt still being out injured. Uh, OBJ recently coming off injury. Jarvis Landry recently coming off injury. Uh, their offensive lines banged up. Uh, Nick Chubb just came back in the game off injury. A lot of players that are have been injured and been coming back. But facts of the matter is, is if you look at Pittsburgh overall, I mean, I know you're a Pittsburgh fan, but it's, you guys don't have the best offense. You guys don't have a great team overall. Yeah, I would, I would hundred percent agree with that. Like, like Pittsburgh should not be a playoff team, but Cleveland loses to them. They've now lost to what LA, Arizona, Pittsburgh. They've lost what, like, either they've lost their last four, or they've lost like four of their last five, or some horrible stat like that. It's not good. A lot, a lot of it's due to injury. Unlike the Colts, this is purely like injuries. And I don't know, it's just very concerning for them. Uh, particularly for their playoff chances, something we'll talk about later. Uh, next up, the Jets game, the surprise game that we talked about earlier. Um, Mike White was very impressive 
but are the Jets themselves not going to be a bottom five team this season? I don't expect the Jets to be a bottom five team this season just because, I mean, the Mike White performance was wholly unexpected, so I'm not going to really guarantee that's going to happen every week. But when you go out there and you toss for over 400 yards in your first career start against the Bengals defense, which has in recent years not been great, but in in this particular year, they have been pretty decent. And uh, you, you managed to outlast the Bengals offense as well. I think the Jets definitely have a solid chance to play spoiler for some teams. And... You know, Robert Saul in his first career, uh, in his first year coaching, yeah, there were some hiccups to start the year, and he's not working with the greatest team, but he's definitely getting his players to respond and getting results out of him, results out of them that aren't necessarily expected. They've had some bad losses this year, absolutely, uh, getting shut out against Denver. Uh, losing to the Patriots by a combined 70, 79 to 19. So it's obviously not been great all the time, but they've definitely been in some close games. They've managed to beat both the Titans and Bengals, two big players in the AFC uh, by three points each. They lost by only a touchdown to the Falcons. That Panthers game in week one, it was pretty close. Looking down the stretch, I mean, they do have quite a few tough ones. They do have to play the Bills twice. Colts, that's going to be a tough one. They play the defending champ Buccaneers, too. So, I mean, you can probably chalk all of those for uh, as losses. Um, but, I mean, you, you do have some, some nice... Uh, chances to get towards 500 perhaps you play the Dolphins twice you play the Jaguars and Texans and I mean the Saints we don't really know how they're going to respond without Jameis Winston so that remains to be seen it could you know Saints may not skip a beat and continue on as they've been going on so it, it remains to be seen but I think that realistically you could probably get another four wins out of this schedule at least if you're the Jets and I think that you know you have to beat the bad teams in order to not be considered a bad team yes yes you may not be a great team but you'll definitely be not bad not not be considered bad and so I think that if they can at least dismiss of what we would consider the bottom feeders of the league and the Texans and the Jaguars. And I mean, the Dolphins record is worse than how they've been playing, but if they can, if they can take care of business against the Dolphins as well, then I think you can sort of see some optimism for the Jets in the Robert Sala era, hopefully carry that into next season. Yeah, they certainly have some winnable games on their schedule. I think it'll be hard. I think there's still a team that's probably going to finish around the bottom five, probably. I mean, um, one thing I noticed which was interesting was that teams that had the uh, first overall pick the prior year, but at least over the past, like, two seasons, I think finished still in the bottom five in the next. Obviously, the Jets were two, but uh, 
so I, that's just something I remember that I thought was interesting. But um, I digress. I think the issue for the Jets is just being able to keep putting these consistent performances because realize they beat the Titans and the Bengals. Like they beat two of the top teams in the AFC. And though, you know, they'll, they'll go from these like great highs, they'll then go to lows like losing by 40 points to the Patriots or getting shut out by the Denver Broncos. So this team's at the highest highs and lowest lows. It's just a function of if they can actually put together that offense on a consistent basis because their defense, though, you know, Robert Saul is the defensive coach. He, he hasn't really had time to establish his players defensively yet. So as you said, there are some winnable games there. I think the Dolphins can be winnable. Texans can be winnable. Uh, Saints, eh, you have another Dolphins game. Uh, you've got a Jaguars game. Um, the Saints, like, so basically everything in the middle of the season is good, and then you have Bucks, Bills, and then you have the Bills and Colts. I, I feel like they should not be winning those games. Um, which then, if they somehow won all those games, that would be six, which would put them to seven, which definitely would be a bottom five team, but I don't know. I, I, I see them pulling off a few wins in that little uh, middle of the six-game stretch, um, which would definitely make them way better than last year. Last year, they only had two wins. Um, the only other thing I can really say, and I'll bring up for this game, is Michael Carter, I think, could be a stud. He's been really solid. That was his best game that he had, um, not only rushing the ball, but also catching the ball. And realize he's currently the team's leading receiver. Uh, he has 26 receptions, um, two more than Corey Davis and three more than Jameson Crowder uh, for 226 yards. And uh, he doesn't have a touchdown yet on him, but he's uh, coming out of college. We talked about he was the receiving back between him and Javante Williams, uh, certainly kind of showing that. But then he's also been showing that he can do uh, work on the ground with against Cincinnati, 15 carries, 77 yards and touchdown. Really impressive from him. Um and you're coming up against teams that aren't like really special against like the run or whatnot. And specifically in a matchup against uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is a matchup he can also be productive in. So big shout out, Michael Carter, uh, the jets. I, I hope they are going to be a bottom five team, but it's going to be a stretch. They just have to put together good performances. Yeah. I think, uh, I think reasonably there are, there are six, maybe seven win team, but like as you know, that Michael Carter point, that would be, I mean, that'd be way too high. Yeah. I'd, six or seven is if they do their best. That, that, that'd that be is, that they that have to be consistent. That is true. That's fair enough. Yeah, my bad. Um, but I, I do also have to say in, in terms of the Jets, I think next year, I mean, they, for this draft especially, they really need to be looking for that wide receiver core because if you look at the wide receivers that they have now, Corey Davis, Jamison Crowder, Denzel Mims to – I mean, all of them are good receivers, but none of them really scream wide receiver one. They're all, they were all comp complimentary pieces in pass receiving cores, you know, Crowder with Washington, Davis with Tennessee, uh, Mims was obviously drafted by the Jets recently, hoping that he would fill that wide receiver one slot that hasn't exactly panned out. So the Jets really need to look towards that wide receiving core, because if you give 
you know, Zach Wilson or Mike White, whoever the quarterback ends up being weapons, and you have the pass catching back in Michael Carter, then the Jets offense becomes a lot more prolific. I feel like they can find that in free agency. If anything, I'd build towards defense, and I'd build definitely towards that offensive line. Uh, that is also the, good. That's, that is for the future. Um, to go into the next question here, um, kind of like the notable headline when we talked about the Steelers and Browns, um, was this just a dreadful loss for Tampa or is Sean Payton uh, Tampa-based kryptonite? I'd chalk it up uh, to a – a bad loss for Tampa more than anything. Uh, it's just sort of, I saw a tweet about it, and it's sort of true that in throughout Tom Brady's career, he's been so great and has dominated so many great quarterbacks, Hall of Famers too. But for some reason, it's a weird and interesting quirk in his career timeline is that he always has these weird losses to subpar quarterbacks like you know in, in this case would be Trevor Simeon for the Saints but I mean you you throw in um Mark Sanchez uh there uh, I forgot there was one other one early on in my Miami's history as well um Miami has a ton of quarterbacks that have managed to pull off an upset even with a subpar quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick obviously I mean he's a journeyman quarterback but he's not necessarily Hall of Fame level and so yeah, Brady's just had these weird losses in his career, and I mean, I, we don't really know what to make of it exactly. Um, so I think, yeah, Tampa wasn't necessarily ready for Trevor Simeon. Their defense gave up quite a bit, um, and I think that that definitely had a fair bit to do with it. Yeah, the pick six at the end sort of sealed the Bucks' fate, but I think that this is more just a, a fluke loss than anything for Tampa. I think they can rebound pretty easily and, and come out ready for next week. I think just Tampa and Sean Payton don't really mix uh, in, in this Brady era. I think they're what two now uh, one and two against Sean Payton. I think, I don't think they destroyed them in their other game. They played against them last year, but I digress. Um, Sure, Tampa had a good bit of injuries going into this game, but they still have a stacked team even with those injuries off, uh, not talked about. So I think this is just more Sean Payton's Tampa's kryptonite in a sense. Um, obviously, as I said, they are, you know, in the three-game series. It's not like the Saints have won all of them. But, you know, with their third-string quarterback and basically nobody at wide receiver, New Orleans still pull off a win. So to me, that still screams that it's like a kryptonite type of scenario. Um, I don't think this is going to change much for Tampa's trajectory. Uh, New Orleans will be interesting. I guess we'll see. Um, next up here, the last game of Sunday, the Sunday night game. Uh, how big was that W for the Cowboys? Absolutely massive. 100%. I mean, it just... It's so surprising because Dallas was sort of in the doldrums last year, having lost Dak for the season. They were optimistic, and it's clicked on offense in the pat in, in recent years for them, not necessarily on defense. And this year, I really feel that it's coming together, and. When you trot out your backup quarterback, 
it, it, you know, in sort of uh, unexpected fashion because Dak was warming up before the game. A lot of people thought he was going to play. Then you send Cooper Rush out there. It it's it's a Minnesota team that has had some decent performances this season. That overtime victory in Carolina, the the victory over Seattle, even when they had Russell Wilson. It was missed field goals that cost them their wins against uh, Arizona and Cincinnati. So this is a solid Vikings team, and the defense did their part. They managed to hold on and restrict them to only 16 points. But then the offense, Cooper Rush, um, first he hit, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, Cedric Wilson, I believe it was, in stride for like a 75-yard touchdown. It was a beautiful throw, beautiful route. It, you could not have drawn it up any better. And then the game-winning drive, too, that he led uh, to get a touchdown with, I think, just like 50 seconds remaining. I mean, he he played a, a decently well game. When you surround a, a backup quarterback, especially, with such incredible um, weapons, then you you can expect to win games like this. and it builds confidence in your team saying like, Hey, even if we're missing a major piece of our team, that being Dak, of course, then we can still find ways to win defense scrapped and fought and they, they held their own offense did what they needed to do. And so I, I, I applaud the Cowboys for an overall very impressive performance. Yeah, I mean, that's actually what you were just saying at the end was exactly what I was going to say. Um, it's the fact that the defense was able to maintain the game and that Cooper Rush was able to actually put up an impressive performance, even when uh, uh, resident Cowboy fan Dan Steinbach was not expecting so whatsoever. Um, Cooper was great. Um, they helped Amari Cooper get back into rhythm. That's like Amari Cooper's second big game of the season. Like he hasn't had a big game since the Tampa Bay game. Um so hopefully this helped out Amari. Uh, the run game didn't really get helped out in this matchup, but c'est la vie. Um, hopefully Amari got helped out in the defense, just showing that they are able to like do well and show out. So big congratulations to the, the Dallas defense has completely turned itself around in a year. Um, huge. Um, next up, looking into this Monday night matchup, she's barely held on to win against New York Giants. Is that more of a concern for the Chiefs in this game, or is it actually more of a positive for the Giants? So Daniel Jones has been weird in his career. He's, he, I mean, you look at the stats. He's always played significantly better on the road than he has away from the Meadowlands. And all three of his game-winning drives have come on the road. So... There are encouraging signs for the Giants. Daniel Jones seems to be sort of coming into his own. He's limiting mistakes, limiting turnovers. He's he's making good reads, good throws. He's using his legs effectively. So credit to the Giants for a hard-fought performance. This, in my opinion, is more a concern for the Chiefs, 100%. Um, their first half, against Washington, been in a win, they looked lost. They got absolutely hammered by Tennessee. They got hammered by Buffalo at home. Philadelphia, they were in a 
a gunslinging battle and it eventually uh, Kansas City pulled it out based on the strength of their offense. So when you when you limit the Chiefs offense and you force them to make mistakes, Mahomes has been uncharacteristic this season with the amount of interceptions that he's had and, and mistakes that he's made. Um, you allow the 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 Chiefs, you, you allow an opening for your team because the Chiefs defense is essentially non-existent. It's pretty much just a wet sheet laying on the ground. It mm-hmm. yeah, and I mean the, the Giants did have a, a decent enough performance. They put up 20 points. I mean, when you go into Arrowhead, you probably need to put up more in order to have in order to come out of there with a win. Uh, both the Chargers and the Bills. Uh, had over 30 points when they came into Arrowhead and won. So it it's definitely concerning for the Chiefs because now, I mean, there's they if they had lost that game, I believe they would have been three and five. Now yeah. they're sitting, yeah, now they're sitting at four and four. Um or sorry. Yeah, they're they're sitting at four and four. And you look at the rest of the AFC, it, they're not letting up. And the, the yes, the NFL playoff picture has been a bit unpredictable so far, as we were talking about earlier with the, the Jets and Bengals. So anything could happen. But the Chiefs currently don't possess any leverage really in the division. They're third uh, currently in the division. And they already have a loss to the Chargers, so that does not bode well for them. Um, they do have a tough schedule coming up in, in the coming weeks. I mean, they have the Packers, Raiders, Cowboys, Broncos, which is a little bit of a break, and then Raiders again. And then, I mean, even after that, it goes Chargers, Steelers, and Bengals before finally closing with the Broncos. I'd say the Broncos are literally the only easy game that they have remaining on their schedule. Even, I mean, yes, I might be a little biased as a Steelers fan, but even I feel like we can put up a fight against them and, and, you know, scrap and claw on that one. It just feels like the Chiefs have a difficult, difficult schedule facing them. And I just don't think that they have what it takes to pull it out and make the playoffs. I don't think that Mahomes with the way he's been playing this year can be, is able to carry this defense. Yes. They, we talked about it earlier in the, in the show that um, they acquired Melvin Ingram in a trade with the Steelers, but I don't think that's going to be enough for the chiefs. And I think that this is sort of, we're sort of seeing a little bit of a decline from uh, what, what we thought would have been a dynasty in the NFL. Well, he can't carry the defense, but he also really can't carry himself. He has 10 interceptions, and I think he's thrown an interception every single game, including a horrend- another horrendous one against New York. Uh, he wasn't really able to connect with Travis Kelsey well. This is a lot more of a concern for the Chiefs, just because it, like Arrowhead was like felt like almost like locked win for KC over the past few years. And now, if you look at Arrowhead, barely winning against the Giants. They lost to the Bills by a lot. Uh, they lost to the Chargers. Uh, and then they barely beat the Browns in a game that the Browns should have won and they choked it. Um, this is a lot more concerning for the Steelers or for the uh, Chiefs. 
The Giants haven't been great thus far and realize they've had a lot of their pieces missing. Kadarius Tony just got back. Sterling Shepard just got back that game. They are still without Saquon Barkley, still without Kenny Galladay. Um, I think Evan Ingram's still like in his second game back. So New York missed a lot of pieces and yet we're still only able to lose by three. This is definitely a better sign for the, it's definitely a, a good enough sign for them that they could possibly turn it around and get a few more wins this year. But it's a lot more concerning for Kansas City because you're letting a team that has been banged up this year still compete with you at home. And you do have a pretty rough schedule ahead with the Packers, the Cowboys, Chargers, who've already beat you this season, and the Bengals, and the Raiders. So, yeah, not really an easy schedule, to say the least, for um, Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, the last question here is, Dan, Dan and I talked about this last episode, trying to start mocking up some playoff teams um, and real quick here, uh, of the 10 teams that I mocked up for that list that Dan agreed with me on, what three teams are you now the most worried about uh, actually making the playoffs? Those teams mean the Bills, the Patriots, the Ravens, the Bengals, the Browns, the Titans, the Colts, the Raiders, the Chargers, and the Chiefs. Hmm. Well, the Bills and Ravens, I feel like, are – are going to be pretty safe walks for the playoffs. Um, the Ravens have been inconsistent, to be honest. I feel like their record is is a lot better than what they actually are. It took an amazing comeback against Indianapolis to win. It took a record long field goal just to beat Detroit. It took a uh, costly fumble. Uh, to beat the Chiefs. So I, I feel like they've escaped by the skin of their teeth in a lot of matches. I do think that they have the talent. I just think that they're inconsistent. So while I think they're going to make the playoffs, I don't think they're they're going to do much there. Um, in terms of the Bengals and Browns, the Bengals I'm not really worried about. I think this might be a little blip, and I think that Zach Taylor needs to get his team right. They're coming came off, uh, coming into that match, excuse me, they were coming off of two big wins. And I think that they just need to um, you know, reestablish that, figure out what they need to do as a football team. And they're going to have a bye in two weeks. So I think that they can get back on the right track. Uh, Cleveland, that's a little concerning for me. I'm, I'm a little worried about them. It arguably the most talented roster in football on paper is currently sitting at four and four, last in the AFC North and out of the playoff picture if the season were to end today. Yes, they've been battered with injuries on both sides of the ball, but you, I mean, you you got to find ways to win. And I, I don't really feel like they're going to be able to um, win almost all of their games. I mean, they do have a lot of tough games on the docket remaining, they have uh, the, the Bengals twice, the Patriots, who are no slouches, the Ravens in back-to-back -back weeks, which is going to be tough. Um, well, there's a buy-in between, but still in back-to-back -back games, and Raiders, Packers, and Steelers. So uh, it just the almost the entire remainder of their schedule is tough, and they're going to need to win most, almost all of those games 
if they want to not only uh, make the playoffs, but even control the AFC North, because I think that's going to be important. But yeah, I am worried about the Browns. Um, Titans, we talked about it earlier in the show. I think that they're going to, down the stretch, that AFC South lead that they hold is going to tighten a bit, but I think that, no pun intended, um, but they they are, I feel like the Titans are safe for the playoffs in that division. Colts, as you mentioned, I am a little worried about them. Their the injuries have plagued them. I think that looking ahead, the wild card is the best shot for them. There are a lot of teams jockeying for that wild card spot, so I am a little concerned about them. Raiders, they've been playing better since the um, since the departure of John Gruden. Um, that was a little bit unfortunate, the situation that happened there, but. Since then, it's sort of been um, a little bit of a uh, like rallying event. They've managed to put up strong performances against Denver and Philadelphia. They uh, they just came off a bye now. So looking ahead, if they can keep their foot on the gas, because currently they lead the AFC West. So if they can keep their foot on the gas, I'm not super worried about them because uh, Denver's not a threat. The Chargers are nipping at the bud there, but they are faltering a little bit. And the Chiefs, yeah, not so much. They have a tough schedule. And speaking of those two teams, Chargers and Chiefs, Chiefs, I mean, I'm extremely wor uh, worried about them making the playoffs. I honestly don't think they will at all. I don't think there's much of a chance there unless they seriously get their act together, which I don't foresee happening. The Chargers, though, have a lot more promise. They have um, a lot of talent, and I feel like they could get in there they're current. They currently possess the season were to end today. They currently possess the seventh seed, which is you know just just sneaking in there. I am worried about what they will do because there's this has been a constant theme with them over past I don't know countless years, where they've looked legitimate and they look like they're a competitive team, yet they'll falter in some weird games against teams that they should beat. And for that, I, I am a little worried for them about that. The Patriots as well, their record is not as good as it is as they actually are. And I think that those two teams, having just played that game was really crucial. I think that that could uh, affect things down the stretch. So I am worried for both of those teams. I don't know if that was an exact three teams. However, I know I can definitely give you – I'm going to have four because I have a tie. Uh, the Colts are up there because they don't seem to know how to run their offense, uh, and their defense is good, but also eh, because of the secondary. Chargers are also up there for me. Um, I feel like they could have possibly been a little bit of a flash in the pan, which is what's concerning. Um, Keenan Allen was like just able to be found against New England. He's he hadn't had a good season up till then, but it doesn't seem like Herbert can consistently give him and Williams good production, which is annoying. Um, it's concerning, particularly when their defense is like okay as well. And then I have a tie between the Bengals and the Browns, and that's because the Bengals had a horrible loss, which kind of shows to me that. 
their defense isn't great. It's something we already kind of knew going into the season, but it was proven against the Jets. And the Browns I also have up there because of their injuries and because of uh, not being able to do well in racing games. So that's definitely the teams that concern me. Uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have here for the NFL episode. Uh, a lot that we got to talk about. We got to start off with a little bit of soccer, obviously my favorite. Uh, and then going down the line, had a bit of a recap as of, of this weekend. We were able to talk a little bit about some of the trades that happened. I had a little bit of a Colts radio moment. Uh, not too, too long, I hope. And yeah, so hope you all enjoyed uh, Sean, it has been a pleasure to have you on for these two recent episodes. It was, it was an absolute pleasure uh, being alongside you, Colbjorn, and uh, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. I mean, I hope we're going to be able to talk again here relatively soon. Um, and so you all are aware the next episode, of, of course, will be the episode with Carter Hill as we will preview the Boston College game this Friday. And then we'll also have another episode for the picks and the ACC power rankings. With that being said, I've been Colby Bertram. I've been joined by Sean Lamba. Thank you for listening to the 3304 Sports Podcast, and see you later this week.